Let's open our Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter one, if you will, please. First Peter chapter one. Last Sunday evening we taught the first part of this uh, first chapter down to verse uh, twelve, and we spoke of blood redemption, and which is that which the prophets inquired and searched diligently, and which was preached by the apostles by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. And it said where we left off, which things the angels desire to look into. So it was prophesied by the prophets and preached by the apostles, and the angels been aside in heaven to see what was going on. And the Bible tells us that uh, we are we teach the principalities and, hev- and powers in heavenly places by the things that are going on in the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, so that actually the angels in heaven look down and see what's taking place in the churches throughout the land and see that blood redemption for man is something that they wonder at. So we left off with that verse. And I thought we might just teach on down the rest of this chapter and maybe into the second chapter, at least a part portion concerning our uh, uh, priesthood as believers. If we get that far. If we don't, well, we'll just preach to where we get. You know, I've always liked to go into a a church and hear a preacher take a a passage of Scripture and tell me what it says. You know, sometimes they don't tell you what it says. They, They start here and they read a verse and then they go over some other place and they forget to tell you what that particular passage is all about. So we want to teach it verse by verse and try to give you a little as we go along and you pray for us as we do that. So in verse 13, I want you to look at it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Wherefore, and that is because of what we studied previously and what I've just given you in the introduction, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get ready to run in the race. The metaphor is taken from the old long robes in the eastern countries where they used to wear them and they'd have to gird them up in order to make any progress, especially if you're going to run. It'd be advisable if you're going to walk very fast, but if you're going to run, you'd have to gird up. And he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind uh, into a situation to where you can really progress in spiritual things. So he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And he's talking about temperance in all things. We know that sober is used sometimes to indicate how that we're not to, to be drunk with wine, we're in a success, but be sober in a, in a spiritual way, as well as being sober in a, uh, a material way, a physical way. But it has more to do with uh, a uh, uh, sincerity of heart and mind and a, uh, a mind that is capable of understanding. And he says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, think of the grace that we're talking about. The grace that is to be brought unto you. First of all, the Bible says we're saved by grace, doesn't it? It says, For by grace are you saved through faith. That's uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Uh, in Romans 5, 2, we're standing in grace. He says we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So our standing is in grace. We're taught in grace. In Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. 
And we're growing in grace. That's 2 Peter verse uh, three, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. It says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 4, verse 6 says, Speaking in grace. Let me read this one for you. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let's, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. And then we're told uh, in uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 10, which is not far from where we're studying. Hold your place where we're studying. 1 Peter 4, verse 10, it says, uh, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So grace has a great deal to do with it, us in our lives as Christians, doesn't it? And so we've talked about the things, grace you're saved, we're standing in grace, potting and taught in grace, growing in grace, ministering in grace. That all pertains to this life. But I want you to notice what Peter said here. He says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we have more grace on the road, more grace coming. Grace will not end with this life. It will also include, be included at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I've often wondered what it really means uh, when we think about the return of Christ we're going to have, we have everything now by grace that we do not deserve. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, isn't it? And undeserving to unworthy uh, sinners. It's all the resources of a great and loving God extended to us and given to us because He loves us. And there are so many ways you might try to describe grace but, and define it. But think of the fact that when Jesus comes again, He still has grace. He's not coming to, to judge us on the merits of of whether or not we deserve anything, but to continue to extend the grace by which we're saved, the grace by which we're taught, the grace by wherein we stand, the grace wherein uh, all of this has been given to us pertaining to this life. So we're looking for a widened load, so to speak, of grace at the coming of Christ. If we think grace is, is so great in pertaining to this life, think of how much more when Jesus comes again. And so we're looking for that. So, uh, now I'm back in this First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Now we're to obey. We're to obey and we're to uh, become more holy, more sanctified, more godly. But notice, it says, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. All of us live in the former lusts before we became Christians. Even if you were uh, converted at a young age, you still had sins and lustful things in your life. Because the Bible teaches that we all were by nature the children of wrath. Look in Ephesians 2, if you will. Uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you hath he quickened. You hath he made alive. Is he resurrected? who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is our past condition. And it's not just a few. It has to do with every one of us. It says, When time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now look at verse 3. Among whom also we all... Paul says, I had it. You had it. We all had our conversation or walk in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires 
of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Look at that. You know, there's none of us without that old sinful nature. We were by nature the children of wrath, and uh, we come forth from the womb speaking lies. We have a we have a sinful nature. We're born that way. We are sinners by uh, choice. We're sinners by uh, action and deed. And so we need the redeeming grace of God. And He tells us not according to the former lusts, but as obedient children. Now we're to live as God would have us to live. And always when we come back, I'm taking it for granted. You always come back to where we're teaching. Now verse 15 says. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. In other words, a holy walk, a holy life. Not a sinless life, but a holy life. You know, a lot of people have confused holiness and sinlessness. Jesus was sinless. He has told us to be holy in our living. And we can only be holy as we follow his example and as we uh, are admonished to... uh, progressively sanctify ourselves and to make ourselves what he would have us to be. And it doesn't it, it never means for you and I sinless perfection. It never means that. It means progressive holiness in our lives as Christians. Uh, the Bible says in I believe Second Corinthians chapter seven verse one, having therefore, dearly beloved, these promises, now listen carefully, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, that is the old carnal nature, and spirit, not the Holy Spirit, because he doesn't need any cleansing, right? Our own spirit, it says, cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we progressively become more holy in the things of God. We do that by the means of grace, by the word of God. We do it because of the things that he's given us to make us more holy. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Uh, beginning with verse 17, you have it? You'll find some things that will cause us to be more holy. I want to point out some words, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Verse 17 and 18. If you call, look at the word call, and then judgeth in the middle of the verse, sojourning, and redeemed, or uh, we'll call it... Uh, uh, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed, that's in verse 18. These four things in mind will help us to be more holy. And let's look at them as they progress. First of all, and if you call on the Father, in other words, prayer will will make us more holy, will it not? If you call on the Father, in other words, prayer uh, plays a very uh, crucial part in our life as we progress in holiness. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, in other words, realizing that there is a time of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ that we're held accountable, that will cause us, cause us to be more holy. And then he says, past the time of your sojourning here in fear, there's the third thing. If we realize that we need to walk here in the fear of God, we'll give you some references to these things. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, and it goes into how you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. So at least these four things will cause us to progress in being more holy as obedient children. Let me give you these now as we go back. Verse 17. If you call on the Father, certainly all of us realize that prayer is a very uh, essential in our life as a Christian. A means of one of... The prayer and the word of God, the means of grace, uh, is, is very essential. 
who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. We have the fact that we know that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There are three main passages of Scripture concerning the judgment seat of Christ. You have uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about the judgment of the believer's works, right? And then you have, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it tells us uh, our whole life shall give an account of the deeds done in the body whether they be good or bad. And then I believe it's Romans 14 verse 10 where it's our fellowship as, uh, as Christian brothers and sisters. It says, Judge no man therefore because we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And these three passages of Scripture I'll give to you. Let me see if I can find a place that I have written down to where that you can get them all if you'd like them. In uh, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let's see if I can find them. I usually have these things written somewhere. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. That's our works. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Our whole Christian life. Romans 14.10, our fellowship as Christians. And these three things, you have those three references? These three things are going to be taken into consideration. And if we know, and back in, in your text now in First Peter chapter 1, if we know that we need prayer, verse 17, if we know that we're, we're going to have to give an account to God, then he tells us to pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, what does that mean? That means we need a godly uh, reverence in our work and service for God while we're here in this life. In other words, we need to consider that we're living here and God looks down with His eyes from heaven and He sees everything that's going on. And He knows all about us, inside and out. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man. He seeth all his goings. There's no darkness, no shadow of death, where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Let me give you a good reference for that. Look in Luke chapter 1, verses 74 and 75. Luke 1, verse 74 and 75. I want you to get this verse of Scripture. I believe it will help. It says this, That he would grant you, or grant, grant unto us, rather, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him. Now look, without fear. That says without fear here. And I just said with fear over there. Now look. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. We're without fear of any uh, great danger, but we're in reverence or in holiness. We fear God or we reverence God in holiness, holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. So there's a sense that we're without fear, but there's another sense in which we fear or reverence God. A holy fear. You see the difference? Without fear has to do with that we don't, we're not afraid of the devil anymore. Uh, we're not afraid of, of being judged or condemned because of the little mistakes we make along the way because he treats us now as children. But we do stand in awe at the presence of a holy God and it says in holiness and righteousness before him. And there's the godly fear. Even though it doesn't say it, it, that's what it means. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So as we live and as we serve God, we stand in awe at his presence. Now then, back in the passage of Scripture. So he says, to pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And that will tend to bring out this holiness of life. Now then, verse 18. 
And I know that if we realize how we're redeemed, this will certainly make us want to be more holy and more God. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now then, all of this is connected, even the the, uh, next verses, but we'll have to take time to develop down to that point. So we'll just look at verse 18 at this point. So he says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Remember in the Old Testament, the coin of silver, the shekel of the sanctuary, the redemption money was to be paid uh, and to be given. The rich shall not uh, give more and the poor shall not give less. And they had the certain... Let me give it to you. If you want to look at it in the book of uh, Exodus chapter 30, and we'll talk about being redeemed with silver and gold, but here is silver especially. Exodus chapter 30. Let's pick up reading with verse uh, 12. When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom, see, to redeem, a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them, this they shall give. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty geras, and half shekel shall... Uh, shall be the offering of the Lord. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half shekel. When they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for, for your souls, and thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. See? That's the redemption money. And by the way, you know what they did with that? It was appointed for the service of the tabernacle. You know what they did with the silver? They made the sockets of silver to put the boards of the tabernacle for the foundation of that tabernacle. And so the silver redemption money goes into a foundation that that holds the tabernacle together. In other words, we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and that's our silver redemption. And He's the foundation of our redemption. And He holds it up and holds it together. And it's based upon a sure and true foundation, not upon the silver like the tabernacle where the boards were set in those sockets of silver. There are two tenons on the boards and they were set in sockets of silver. And these sockets of silver were 90 pounds in weight. Can you imagine a 90 pound? Some of us have built something and set it on a little block. They make these little blocks nowadays four inches high, eight inches wide, and 16 inches long, and they're light as a feather. You pick them up with one hand. But, but can you imagine one board now with tenons in it being set in sockets of silver that weighed 90 pounds? You see, God wants His building to stand, doesn't He? And He wants us to know that our foundation in Jesus Christ is secure. That it's not going to topple over. That we have a good foundation. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that passage I gave you where it starts talking about our works, it says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And He's the true foundation. And I believe that our house will stand built upon Christ, don't you? Our salvation will stand. Our, our redemption money is greater. And it goes on to, 
to in our passage that we're studying, it goes on to develop from that verses from that thought of the silver redemption of the Old Testament to that which really redeems us and is the foundation of our faith and of our salvation. Look at verse eighteen again. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Now, but with the precious blood of Christ, Jesus shed his blood as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we're redeemed with something that is more valuable. It has no estimate as to the value. When it means precious, it means it's so high a cost that that we cannot estimate. It not only means precious as dear. We think of the word precious as meaning dear to us, right? And he is, he, he, Christ himself is dear. And the blood he shed certainly is very uh, great and wonderful for us, but it's talking about as value. We are redeemed by the greatest value, so great that no man can describe how great a value it really is. If you had chests full of gold and silver, it wouldn't amount to the value of the precious blood of Christ. It's the Son of the living God. If you read Acts chapter 20, uh, let's see if we can get this one. Acts chapter 20, there's a verse of Scripture here that's, that's real good on the blood. It says in verse 28, To the Ephesian elders, Paul says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Now look at this. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. See that? God has purchased us with his own blood. Now, it, it doesn't say here the blood of Christ. We know it was the blood of Christ. because But here it's referring to Christ's blood as God's blood. In other words, it's referring to it as, the, as his blood. He was God manifest in the flesh, as if God could be... The only way God can be human and have blood is through the Incarnation and God becoming flesh. So God in heaven doesn't have blood, you see? Because God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in, him in spirit and in truth. But when God says, I'm going to become flesh... Jesus laid his glory by and became man and was born of a virgin and took upon him human form and there was going to be blood flowing in his veins, but it was not going to be the sinful blood of man. It was going to be holy and divine and without any taint of sin. So he's redeemed us by his blood. And that's why it says precious. And you, no one could value. We might value the blood of man and put a price tag on it. We might go to the hospital and get a blood transfusion. We might get a pint of blood or seven pints, as I had to get one time. And if I hadn't got them, I'd be in bad shape today. I went to the hospital, and my hemoglobin was 4.1, which uh, the doctor said if you get a man in an automobile wreck, take him to the hospital, and, and it was that, they wouldn't even call the hospital. They'd call the funeral home. But I had lost it so gradually that uh, I had learned to live with it, I guess. But anyway, I was very weak. But they gave me seven pints of blood before I ever got any strength back. And now I feel good. Thank the Lord. <laughs> you know, God can do a lot of things for us, and He has His own way and reasons, purpose in doing these things. It makes us what we ought to be. It helps us to make us what we ought to be. Sometimes the sicknesses and the, the downturns of, of life are just as valuable for us as, as the other part of our lives. In fact, in the first chapter... 
if you'll turn back, if you still have it in First Peter, in verse 6 and 7, he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season it need be, sometimes it needs to be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. God says it may need to be that you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Verse 7 now, That the trial of your faith, being more precious than gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So when Christ comes, we're going to look back on our lives and say, God, all of those things, Jesus, all those things that I thought was for my harm and uh, for my, uh, to keep me from progressing in life and succeeding in life and doing all the things I wanted to do, I found out were for my good because they're more precious than a gold that perishes. And I say that to help you, that if tonight, or if at any time in your life, even if it's not tonight, or if you have it come to you in the future, or have it in the past, you might understand. But if you go through a time of trial in your life, God has a purpose for it. And He has a reason for it. And He says, that's more precious to you. You say, I'd love to have a, a million bucks of gold, but He says, I've got something more precious. The trial of your faith. He says, that's going to be more precious. And he says, you're going to know that to be true at the appearing of Christ. See? The grace that is to be brought at the coming of Christ. So, let's go on with this now. I chase a few rabbits once in a while. But uh, right down here, it says, But with the precious, verse 19, always hold your place. I tell everyone to always hold your place where we're studying. Because eventually, even though I do chase those rabbits, we'll get back to this. We will come back. I shall return. It says, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now look, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Christ is looked upon as a lamb, but as a perfect lamb. As one that has no spot or blemish. And that takes us back now to the Passover lamb, doesn't it? Remember, uh, God told Moses, he says, you take the lamb of the first year, and he says, you put it, take it on the tenth day of the month, and you put it up and you inspect it thoroughly, scrutinize it, look at it, uh, examine it, day in every day for four days until the 14th day of the month. In other words, it was it had to be absolutely clean, without spot or without blemish. And if we can say that an actual lamb of a flock could be looked upon and inspected in that way, think of how that Jesus was inspected. Think of how that he was inspected by men Man looked upon him. He says, uh, you know, even Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. All during his uh, life, well, during his ministry, never man spake like this man. He says, which of you convinces me of sin? Paul and Peter and John says he, he knew no sin, he did no sin, and in him was no sin. We find that the devil tried to get him to sin and he wouldn't do it. You see? He overcame in every respect. And so he was the sinless. He's the only sinless person that ever lived. Adam was created in innocence, but he sinned and fell. And Jesus, that second Adam, that second man, the Lord from heaven, never did sin and never will. And the only way that sin can even be connected to him was that he became sin for us, or he was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so as a substitute for you and me, he took our sins upon himself and bare our sins in his own body on the tree, as you'll find here in Peter, in the second chapter, verse 24. So Jesus was without, he was a lamb, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. 
Verse 20 says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He was the Lamb. A Revelation 13 verse 8, the Lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. Look in Revelation. Hold your place there. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says this, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Look at that. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Here in Peter it says, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now let's get this in our minds. Before man was ever made, before man was ever created, God knew what he was going to do. God foreknew everything. And he knew that man, he would put Adam and Eve in the garden. He knew that Adam would sin. He knew that he would not be obedient. He knew he would disobey the word of God and rebel against God. And he knew that he would need a redeemer. And he knew that he would have to be redeemed by blood. And so the triune God in eternity past said that the Father says, I'll send my only begotten Son by the power of the Holy Spirit into a sinful world to redeem lost humanity. And it was already foreordained and predetermined before man was ever made that there would be a Redeemer provided for him so that he could be saved. And our salvation, though we come to it in time, yet it was no afterthought with God. He had it prepared before the foundation of the world. Isn't that a great thing that God, that you and I, look at us today. We were born some so many years ago. And Christ had already died for our sins on the cross some 1,900, 2,000 years ago. But even though that happened, and we, we would call that recent history in a sense, but even though that has happened and is a historical fact, yet it was in the mind of God before we were ever made. And thousands and thousands of years before we were ever born. And I don't know how many thousands or even millions of years before the world was made. You see, in the beginning, God was there. And He created the heavens and the earth. The earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And out of that, that chaotic condition, He brought forth light. And we were, that pictures you and I. We were in chaos, were we not? In darkness and in sin. And God moved upon us. The Holy Spirit moved upon us and brought life and light, light and life out of darkness and gave us life. He said, let there be a light. Let there be life as well. And he created life in those early days too. So what we're saying is, is that Jesus was already in the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God determined to be our Savior and in time would come and die on the cross for us. Look at this verse again. Verse 20. Do you have it? Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And I can't help but have to stop, even though we want to go on because it's all connected. But he was manifest in these last times for you. What does that mean? That means the incarnation, doesn't it? In other words, he was foreordained, but in order to carry out this death, as the Lamb of God, by which He would redeem us, He had to become man. He was manifest. In other words, He became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, you have the incarnation. 
You have the foreordained Christ. You have the deity of Christ. You have the pre-existence of Christ. You have the purpose of God revealed. You have the fact that He came down and became man. He was manifested in these last times for you. In other words, that's when Jesus came to this earth, born of Mary, a virgin, laid in Bethlehem's manger. And when uh, Micah speaks of him, he says in Micah 5, verse 2, And now Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall he come forth, who shall be ruler in Israel. Now listen, whose goings forth have been from the days of eternity. The one that has been going forth since before time began, before the world's were. That's why it's so important for you and I to understand and believe in the deity of Christ. And that means the pre-existent deity of Christ. Which a lot of the cults and a lot of the religious denominations even deny. And especially the cults that are all around about us. And that's the first place the devil tries to strike is at the deity of Christ. Did you know that? And then if he can do that, he can strike at the virgin birth. And he can strike on down at the sinless, uh, at the uh, life of Christ. And he can uh, strike on down at the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, and the, and the uh, uh, intercession of Christ. But he starts out striking at the deity of Christ. And did you know this is the most crucial point in our faith? Because the Bible tells us that this is the way that you know whether it's a true spirit or the false spirit or the spirit of the Antichrist. Look in First John. You have your place in First Peter there. But look on over First John chapter uh, 4, verse 1. It says, Beloved, you have it? Just turn over a few pages in your Bible to the book of First John. Chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Someone says, how am I going to know whether it's a false prophet or a true prophet? It does make a difference what we believe and what we teach and what we pass on to other folks. That, that's where false and true comes in. If I tell you something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then I've prophesied falsely. If I tell you that God's Word says this of Christ and it's true of Christ, then that's true, right? Okay, look. He says here, uh, Try the spirits where they're of God. Many false prophets are going out in the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Someone says, I want to know the Spirit of God. He says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. What does that mean? That Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. That means His deity. That means He's come. That didn't mean he had his beginning here in the flesh, but he is come in the flesh. He says, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. But if he came down from heaven, he had to be in heaven first, right? I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. He says, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. So we're not only just talking about the virgin birth of Christ, we're talking about the fact that the one that was virgin born, whose goings forth have been from the days of eternity, from infinity actually. So, and it says here, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the man that denies the pre-existent deity of Christ, if you want to put it in plain terms, is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, where if you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. That was even in John's day, say A.D. 100, if you want to just round it off. Okay? Think of it. And since that first century... 
all through the years there have been those that have followed those unbelievers of John's day and have built upon that and denied the deity of Christ. And it was already in existence. And he says, those that deny the pre-existent deity of Christ, those that deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, they're not of God. Someone says, well, I wonder if these folks are of God. They're sincere, but they go about peddling lies. They're not telling the truth. They're false prophets. The Bible says that they tell something that is not true. And, and John says they're telling something that is not true on a very crucial point. They're denying the pre-existent deity of Christ. You see? So it does make a difference what we believe, doesn't it? It makes a whole lot of difference what we believe. It makes a whole lot of difference of what we teach and what we preach. So if you have some fellow coming along and say, Well, I believe in Jesus. And, but he, he, bought, he was born and he had a, an ordinary life like everyone else. Maybe he wasn't quite as sinful as someone else. They've denied already a half a dozen things. Right there. Just in what few words I've said. They've denied his preexistence. They've denied his deity. They've denied his, his virgin birth. They've denied his sinlessness. They've denied his, uh, those things that are crucial to our faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe this, that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ uh, was the Word in the beginning, and that He was with God and He was God. And when He became flesh, He was God incarnate, that He was God manifest in the flesh. And He revealed the Father to us. Uh, one said to Jesus, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. Jesus says, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me till John 14. Have I been here? I've revealed. He that has seen me has seen the Father. You see? I do the works of the Father. I'm sent from the Father. Uh, John chapter 1, it tells, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That means He hath told Him out. He has revealed Him. And so, uh, He existed. Oh, I love to stay on this. Think about this. Think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ, by Him were the worlds made. It says, without Him was not anything made that was made. You see? And He cannot be a part of His own creation, as some would have us to believe, that He, that he was a created being at some point in time. If there was nothing before Him, He cannot be a part of His own creation. He had to be before anything was made. Right? Uh... God the Father, though we know God said, and the Holy Spirit moved, and we know that Christ was with that in the divine Godhead in the beginning, yet God the Father attributes to His Son the act of creation, the work of creation. Hebrews chapter 1 says, now listen, but unto the Son He saith, listen, the God the Father says, but unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, He calls Him God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. He's speaking to the Son. The Father is speaking to His only begotten. And He says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness, typical of the Holy Spirit, above thy fellows. And He says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning, that's where Jesus was, the Word, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. 
They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. He is forever and ever. He was in the beginning. He lived upon this earth. He died. He was put to death in the flesh. But death could not hold him. He came forth victorious over death, hell, and the grave. It's impossible for death to hold eternal life. And Jesus is life eternal. And so he had to come forth and he resurrected. And he ascended back to the right hand of God and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. So we believe in the deity of Christ. Okay, back in our passage. First uh, Peter chapter 1. It says in verse 20, But was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God. So it's through Christ that we have our faith in God, that raised him up from the dead, God raised him up and gave him glory. He's glorified him. Not only uh, the glory or the wonder of the resurrection, but the glory of ascending back to the Father's presence in glory. He gave him glory in heaven, seated on the right hand of God. And all for this reason, look at the, the crowning statement there, that your faith and hope might be in God. Your faith and hope is in a wonderful person, isn't it? Isn't it? And it has a great foundation. It has a lot of support. You're re- redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. He was foreordained to be your Redeemer. He was manifest. He became incarnate in order to carry it out. Uh, and God says that He raised Him from the dead, that our faith and hope might be in God. You know, looking at these words now, the ones we've just read, God made sure that we would have every reason to have a a steadfast or a living and a uh, uh, really a foundation faith for our salvation. That your faith and hope might be in God. In other words, he doesn't just put a, a couple of little old things out here and say, well, now, if you'll do this or that, then uh, you'll be saved. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to give you multiplied reasons and I'm going to give you a foundation for it. And I'm going to give you the way that is to be. And my provision for your salvation. I'm going to put it all together that your faith and hope might be in God. I'm going to tell you that I thought of you before the world's were. I'm going to tell you that I carried out my plan and sent my only begotten Son to this earth. And I'm going to tell you that He was the sinless one, that He died on the cross, that He shed His blood, and that I raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, and He's back at the right hand of God. And for that reason, you can have your faith in God. Isn't that an encouragement? What more would you want priests to you to cause you to have faith in God? What more could a person ask for? The gospel is not shallow, is it? The gospel is not frivolous. It's not just a little thing here and there that someone has dreamed up. It's God, God's divine plan uh, and, he's, uh, and purpose that's carried out in giving His Son and His Son coming to this world and carrying out the great plan of redemption that was purposed before the worlds began. And, so, and when this is presented, no wonder. If you and I hear that message... Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, ascended back to the right hand of God. If we hear that message of the gospel, no wonder Paul says it's the power of God unto salvation to to everyone that believes. That's a good reason for a fellow to believe, isn't it? We have the inspired word of God, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. We go on and we find that we're born again, not of corruptible seed. Let's go on down. Look. 
Verse 22, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, you accepted it, you believed it, you obeyed the Word of God, you received Christ through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit moved you to do that, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, He shed the love of, the, of God abroad in your hearts when you were saved. See that you love one another uh, with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Look at this now. It's by this word that was preached. Look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. This living, incorruptible word. You see, this is written. God's word is written, but it's living. There's no word like this. You take a history book and it's, it tells of history. You take a geography book and it tells you of places upon this earth. And, of course, the science books point you to the heavens and the stars and the planets and things that they're doing nowadays. And, and there are various types of 